Hello and welcome to July's Rich Pickings. I'm Richard Edgar and you join me as usual on the seafront by my home on the English South Coast, reflecting on the discussion we've just recorded. The topic this month is the United States elections in November and we talked through the potential repercussions. Over the next three months, Republicans and Democrats will be running for control of the Senate, the House of Representatives and, of course, for the White House. President Trump is already squaring up against the Democratic nominee Joe Biden. As you'll hear, this election is coloured not just by the growing health crisis, but a hobbled economy and social uprising across the country, leaving a deeply divided electorate. Today, we look at what all that means for markets and portfolios. Listen on to find out more. Well, with me in our domestic studios today are Anna Stupanitska, Global Economist, Portfolio Manager Aditya Kuala, and Ned Salter, Global Head of Research and Head of Equities in Asia Pacific. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. US politics is the theme of this month's podcast, so I'd like to ask each of you for a personal memory of an event in American political history and how it played out in your career. A very easy question. So, um, Anna, let me come to you first of all. Well, um, for me, it was uh, 2001 and um, China joining the WTO. Uh, And this was facilitated by the U.S.-China Relations Act of 2000, which was signed um, uh, into law by Bill Clinton in October 2000. Um, And of course, this was a truly momentous uh, event, not just for the U.S. and China, but for the whole global economy, uh, which shaped global trade, production and consumption patterns, etc., And it shaped my career as well. I spent a lot of time working on and doing research on what the rise of China and other big emerging markets would mean for the global economy and markets. And doesn't it seem like a lifetime ago? A lot has happened in 19 years. Anna, thank you very much indeed. Um, Ned, what about you? Mine took place in 2001 as well. I was thinking of the September 11th crisis uh, as a formative uh, experience in American political history, as well as one uh, that influenced my career. Um, a terrible, terrible circumstance, uh, but not unlike the crisis that we're going through today with COVID, which has been devastating from a health perspective. This is a liquidity uh, crisis that we're experiencing in markets. The GFC, we experienced a solvency crisis. And on September 11th, in addition to being a terrible human tragedy, uh, it was also a geopolitical security uh, related impact on markets. And I think as markets think about resilience more holistically, Uh, we need to prepare ourselves and be able to adapt from shocks like this. A good lesson. And Aditya, finally, coming to you. Um, Mine was actually the election of Donald Trump, because how unlikely that event was. I mean, he had been given no chance to win. And I remember distinctly at like two, three in the morning, we realized he's starting to win. And the the media went berserk (laughs) thinking about that. And, you know, the playbook that time was that if Trump got elected, however unlikely, the markets will crash and gold will rally. And that kind of happened for 10 minutes. And then by the morning, everything ripped because suddenly the market realized this was the most bullish event that can happen. And everybody's prediction was wrong. And so that kind of made me realize that actually trying to game the system by predicting events is the worst thing that you can do. And the experts are most likely wrong in a lot of places. <laughs> they, they can be, they can be. But um, we're actually going to come to those predictions now for the elections in November. Um, Ned, can you give us a summary of what the polls are saying about where the race stands between Donald Trump and Joe Biden at the moment? Yeah, so while we're on the topic of experts, the, the experts are saying that Biden is significantly ahead by a very wide margin. In recent polls in the U.S., 
we're seeing Biden with a decisive lead, 52% versus 40% in the case of Trump. And one of the things I thought was particularly interesting is that Biden is now showing ahead in the polls in every single swing state that voted for Trump in the 2016 election. So it seems pretty cast iron at the moment, but they can be wrong, as Aditya said, and a lot can happen in three months. So if we've learned anything from the 2016 election, it's that anything is, is possible, isn't it, Ned? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, with now, I think, 98 days to go until the election, it's certain that a lot can happen between now and then. And we must bear in mind also that the incumbent in instances like this oftentimes can have an advantage and that they're the sitting president. Ah, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it, Ned? Because, um, Anna, I'm going to come to you now, because it's usually accepted that whilst the incumbent could have an advantage, voters don't usually look favourably upon an incumbent US president when the economy is tanking and COVID-19 is indeed taking a toll. So um, what do you expect in the lead up to uh, the election with this interesting balance of those two sides? Yeah, I mean, clearly uh, Trump uh, Trump is in a tricky situation given the recent acceleration in COVID spread, um, which um, has really been due to uh, mismanagement, I think, by authorities of economic reopening. It's It's been inconsistent, not really evidence-based. Um, and this recent spike has been very damaging to the economy after after the bounce that we saw since the reopening. Uh, we have seen mobility gains moderating um, as uh, clearly some states um, reverse uh, reopenings. Um, we've seen a number of indicators, including the labor market indicators, showing that uh, recovery progress is uh, tailing off. Um, and consumer sentiment uh, has also been deteriorating, which is extraordinary uh, given given the amount of stimulus that has been uh, pumped into the system and the amount of money that has been put in consumer pockets. Um, so it just suggests that the opening is not by itself sufficient for a sustained boost in activity. And importantly, consumer sentiment is unlikely to just improve with reopening. You need to have uh, control over the virus and you need to make sure that consumers are confident to go out um, and spend and consume. So I would say as we look over the next few weeks and months to the elections, for me, um, the key to growth story uh, is going to be about the size, uh, efficiency and timing of the next fiscal stimulus. And these are the negotiations that are ongoing right now. They are. Overnight, um, at the time of we're recording this um, podcast, the future package of subsidies that you're referring to includes unemployment benefits in the States. It's been a lifeline for millions of out-of-work Americans. But the Republicans unveiled their proposal, backed by the White House, but for a much reduced level of support. So how important is that, Anna? I mean, it's not, it's not law yet, but um, it is backed by the Republicans and the White House. Yeah, the Republican proposal is for around $1 trillion. The uh, Democrats are proposing $3.5 trillion, so clearly a very different number. Um, the expectation is it's going to be a compromise uh, Perhaps not in the middle, uh, more on the lower range, um, around one and a half trillion. 
If it includes uh, stimulus checks, similar to what uh, we saw, so $1,200, that would be extremely helpful to maintain disposable incomes. Uh, the expectation is that, that the unemployment benefit of $600 a week um, that people have been receiving uh, since the crisis is going to be cut, perhaps to uh, $300 and $350 per week. So that's a substantial drop. Overall, um, it's likely that the consumers will see a reduction in disposable incomes in the second half of this year. It's un- unlikely to be a very sharp drop because there will be more help, but clearly it's not going to be as powerful as what we saw uh, throughout the, the last uh, few months since the crisis. Well, the Republicans are worried about more government spending, but if ever there were an incentive for them to, to spend big, I guess now is the time. Aditya, do you think that um, Trump could win even if the economy is doing badly? Um, never say never. I think the, the left field event is if you do find a vaccine within the next two or three months and suddenly the economy shoots up, and so then the argument of whether he bungled the whole coronavirus thing may be left behind. As Ned said, we've got only 98 days to go and the clock is ticking. So, But memories are short if it, if it does get fixed. I mean, it does seem a little bit of a long shot at the moment to rely on a vaccine. Um, that uh, the, 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 the talk from the medical circles is that it's, it's not going to be around in time for an election. I know. But again, my experience with the 16 election was that don't bet on anything. Just prepare for the best and expect the worst. Ned, is it the case that, um, uh, well, you were talking about the polls a little bit earlier, and they suggest that um, even if Mr. Biden is ahead overall, electors in America trust Trump on the economy more than they do Joe Biden? Yeah, I think that that is something that we've seen come out. There's no question that, that right now Americans, in terms of their leadership on the virus itself, the overwhelming uh, a balance is in favor of Biden being a more authentic and capable leader as it relates to the handling of the virus. But, but as you mentioned, with regards to, to the economy, there is still a holdout of people who support Trump versus Biden in terms of stewardship of the economy overall. Um, I think obviously there will be other issues that influence this election beyond just COVID and beyond just the economy, namely the social unrest that we've seen in the United States uh, as a function of Black Lives Matter and, and, and racial uh, justice uh, more holistically. And so when we look at the polls, we can also pull out that a very significant percent of the population have identified that racial justice as a key pillar of something that's important in the election. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't overlook that and only focus on coronavirus in the economy as we think about the relevance of the polls. There's an awful lot going on, isn't there, um, Ned? Because you've got a very divided country in the US. Um, you've mentioned the social unrest. Um, there is also tension with China. Anna mentioned uh, China right at the beginning, and that seems to be being stoked at the moment. Could it be that, paradoxically, all of this trouble, including the pandemic, could play to Donald Trump's advantage because more anxious voters um, would perhaps turn to the continuity candidate, the man they know better than Joe Biden or certainly have got more recent exposure to him. Is that something that could also play out, do you think? It's possible, absolutely. I think the, th- the thing you know may be better than the thing you don't know. And so there may be some voters who hold that um, I think there is a whole, you know, uh, segment of the population that think that Trump has valiantly fought for American values and American interests abroad. Uh, I, I think there's another part of the population, however, that thinks it's how you act, not just what you do. And so the the attraction of Trump is 
is the is the idea that uh, diplomacy might move up a rung in the level of relative importance, and the way that a Biden White House might engage with with, with partners and governments around the world might provide greater continuity, greater certainty, and in fact, that may be beneficial to markets as well. Let's come to markets and what it all means for um, investments. It's a very complicated and unpredictable situation, which um, presents a challenge for all of you on on this podcast. We're going to hear um, clips from a number of um, other members of the investment team at Fidelity with their views. First of all, here's Charlotte Harrington, who's a portfolio manager in the multi-asset team. It's actually quite hard to pinpoint the day in which asset markets really start to to price these things. And in all likelihood, they've already started to price it in in some way. So I think in terms of positioning, the cleanest way to to be playing this at the moment is through different sectors and, and how the different policies might impact those sectors. So for instance... Um, Biden's probably not so good for the healthcare sector. He's a bit more keen to deal with the high drug prices in in the US. He's probably good for some of the companies that uh, are consumer beneficiaries, although less so on on the tech side of things, where they do uh, sort of want to hit tech more, a bit more with harsher regulation. Same thing in finance, probably a bit harder on on the financial sector. Uh, And sectors like utilities benefit really from both any kind of risk-off move, but also they are are a regulatory winner. That was multi-assets Charlotte Harrington. Now, Aditya, how do Charlotte's comments compare to your own views? Uh, And also, she can invest in pretty much any asset, but you're restricted to equities. Does that matter? I think uh, I am in broad agreement with her. Although I I must say that there are more similarities between Trump and Biden than people sort of realize. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, the fiscal deficit is out of control. So whoever wins the election has to sort of handle it. And there are two or three key elements on those where both kind of agree. One is that the healthcare expense as a percentage of GDP is quite high in US. And so both need a mechanism to control it. So Biden, obviously, people think drug prices. But I think both sets of leaders have to deal with it in some way or the other. The other way, the other area where I think um, there is a consensus emerging is that defense spending as a percentage of GDP or real defense spending will not rise. So that has to be controlled. And th- that obviously releases some fiscal uh, benefit to the government. The, the Biden plan obviously involves um, increasing some taxes. So that pressures earnings. So you would want to then, in that case, invest in more global stocks or, or stocks with global earnings rather than just the American earnings because the American companies will have lower earnings going forward. So again, because my experience in 2016 was so dramatic, I don't want to take super directional bets, but on the margin, I think you can tailor the portfolio accordingly and look for more commonality rather than try to game the system by going for the extremes on either side. And have you heard enough from the Republican campaign to get a good understanding of what Trump 2.0 might look like, you know, as we go through the next four years? I mean, I think to be fair to Trump, he has achieved more or less everything he said he will do. And it was funny because in one of the interviews with Hannity, he was asked, what's your agenda for next four years? And he kind of gave a blank stare. So my sense is that 
he doesn't really have a strong agenda. So I think status quo is the best outcome. Status quo being him sitting in the White House, I suppose, as well. That is the best Status quo from him and the, and the policies that he has pursued. I mean, what else can he do? He's cut the taxes. He's done everything from a regulatory perspective. Um, he's picked the fight with China, as he said he would. He could escalate that even further or not. We don't know exactly because we don't know what he believes in anyway. So from here, I think a Trump election or Trump win is a status quo election. While actually Biden seems to be the more of a change candidate, which is weird. It is. Um, Ned, do you agree with the consensus view that a democratic win is um, is, is bad for markets? I mean, um, Adita talked about taxes. Uh, Mr. Biden says he'd increase corporate taxes to 28% from the current 21%. That's bad, isn't it? I, I do not agree with the with the consensus that the Democrats are bad for markets, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, there is clear downside to S&P earnings on the basis of a democratic uh, White House um, and whether that's 10% or 15%, we can debate, uh, certainly. But but as we know, um, asset prices, equities are, are priced on the basis of the earnings and the multiple which you're willing to pay for that for that stream of earnings, the perpetuity calculation, so to speak. And, and from my perspective, um, I think there is a possibility, while that there may be downside to earnings, uh, some of that, if not all of that, can be made up in continued strength in multiples that we've seen. Um, I think there is an element of uncertainty in markets or volatility, uh, given that the current administration governs by tweet. And so I think uh, a more stable and forecastable set of policies may provide some resilience to multiples. So I think painting it all as downside without considering the other case might, might, might leave us, uh, lead us astray. Bit more nuance, um, Anna. As this all adds up into a broader economic picture, how do you think that a, a Biden presidency could compare to um, a, the re-election of Donald Trump? If um, we get uh, Biden's president together with the Democratic sweep, um, this is probably uh, quite growth friendly. Biden has called for greater support for the middle class um, to offset um, high income and uh, high corporate taxes. But I think the risk of tax tax increases is perhaps not as high um, as people think because this is happening, uh, obviously, in the environment of uh, a very weak economy. Uh, So I think Biden... Uh, is likely to take a softer stance um, on tax increases, at least um, uh, in the short to medium run. And at the same time, we're likely to see a high stimulus to combat um, uh, COVID. Um, and so uh, we're likely to see a bigger deficit uh, uh, expansion, again, particularly if we, we have a democratic sweep, if the Senate is, uh, is still controlled by uh, Republicans, uh, then that that um, sort of room for more fiscal stimulus is much more limited. So I think the, the most growth-friendly outcome um, would be Biden with a democratic sweep, particularly um, as um, the, the trade war with China uh, is likely to remain under both scenarios. But I think Biden will probably take uh, a much friendlier stance towards other trading partners. Um, and that could also support growth. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. Let's hear from another of our investment team. Uh, this is Peter Kahn, who's a fixed income portfolio manager on how various forms of stimulus are steering his allocations. What we expect to see is, um, you know, kind of a rising tide of defaults and restructurings in 
uh, say, the less systemic elements of the economy, right? So small businesses and, and households clearly going to be under under some pressure, particularly if the next round of paycheck protection program, you know, 3.0 is not as generous, uh, which there's every reason to expect it will be less generous because the U.S., system has always tried to incentivize employment over fiscal transfers and that ethos probably remains in play through the next administration, whether it's Democratic or Republican, assuming that it's centrist Democratic. It's going to be you know, a challenge for consumer facing businesses that rely upon that marginal disposal income bracket. The element here that you know really tilts the playing field in favor of just being long risk assets uh, is, of course, the central bank intervention and the backstop behind uh, the investment grade credit market. There's you know going to be winners and losers within that particular uh, space as well. Uh, you know, as anybody who's over levered and requiring a lot of top line growth, driven by the ability to uh, set price and and retain price increases, uh, you know that that's going to be a challenging space, and we'd expect some negative migration in those credits. Uh, but uh, you know, in all other sort of credits in investment grade space, it seems like. The Fed's got your back. The ECB's got your back on on default risk. Uh, so you might as well go ahead and capture the, the liquidity premium there. Portfolio manager Peter Kahn. Now, Anna, do you expect the Fed to stay its course regardless of who is in the White House come November? Of course, the Federal Reserve is entirely um, apolitical. Yeah, I think the Fed will stay on hold uh, for a number of years. I think at least until 2023, um, they will keep rates on hold and will continue with QE, depending obviously uh, on the macro situation and um, uh, on uh, the functioning of the markets. But of course, uh, there is some... Uh, there is a consideration about uh, that independence. It's possible that at some point uh, this um, fiscal dominance of monetary policy that we are uh, observing right now um, is going to stay and become a permanent tool. Uh, I think this is a big risk uh, for the economy, and uh, particularly in terms of uh, prospects for inflation. Uh, but at this point in time, I don't think it will continue, as in I think the Fed independence uh, is likely to be maintained. Um, but of course, um, the, the the next uh, president, uh, by law, is allowed to nominate members to fill the empty seats to the board of governors um, uh, and to nominate the chair of the board as well. So I think perhaps if Biden wins, um, Powell will likely uh, exit in uh, 2022 when his term ends. Um, and uh, uh, Biden will probably replace him um, with a dovish but more mainstream candidate. Um, and then if we have... Um, Trump, again, if uh, Trump is unhappy uh, at that time uh, about how the Fed is handling policy and what's happening in the economy, he might appoint a more unorthodox um, uh, chair. So um, it, really, it really depends. Uh, but I think uh, in the short to medium term, given the economic fallout, uh, it is likely that the Fed will remain extremely accommodative, independent of what happens in November. 
exciting times um, either way. Aditya, it does strike me that this is um, a bit of a driver for, for risk assets now. But are you worried about the disconnect between um, what's going on in markets and this very real activity in the world of politics and, and the real economy? Of course I am. I mean, my job is to sort of worry about things. The market <laughs> always climbs a wall of worry, right? So I guess the, the way to think about it is if somebody at the start of the year said, well, we'll have the biggest crisis since World War II in terms of economy and look at the deficits and everything else, and then you would say the S&P would be flat for the year in July, then you would have pinched yourself or you said you're crazy. But that's where we are. And so that's the fascinating bit is the Main Street is absolutely getting cratered while the Wall Street is absolutely at highs. And I think I sort of give the blame or the credit to Fed and the fiscal policies because the amount of stimulus that we've gone in the system is the highest since World War II. And so we are at a war economy level. And so that that stimulus has gone into the into the main street, but also in the in the equity markets. And I worry that what happens when the stimulus runs out and the real economy starts to sort of manifest itself. And I think the other issue I've got with the whole uh, market is that there are a very select group of stocks which are pulling the market up. So the, so the FANG stocks or the big mega cap tech are up 30% year to date, while the average stock in S&P is down 10%. So there is this massive spread which has opened up. And that also shows in the gold price. So one of the things sort of I watch is what is gold doing? And so gold is going bananas right now because market is saying that this is all funny money. It's not real money. So, so the biggest risk I've got is not anything else, but once the stimulus runs out and, and what happens then? And I sort of, I'm nervous. The other issue is that the bond markets have not confirmed a lot of these things because the bond deals are still at the floor. So typically if the markets are going up, you would expect yields to go up, um, which is not because the Fed is so concern and and we're talking about yield curve control so so that disconnect worries me increased regulation and an attempt to rein in wall street are high on the democrats agenda ned what advice would you give investors who are worried about more red tape yeah again i find myself in the position of having an anti-consensus view here on this one which is to say that i don't necessarily agree that increased regulation is a negative for asset prices We're navigating extreme exogenous shocks around the world. And I think as governments and companies increase their level of resilience, that can be a good thing for asset prices, a good thing for multiples. And to some extent, regulation is effectively government ensuring that companies and countries have made themselves more resilient to be able to withstand future external shock. Well, let's um, hear from another portfolio manager, somebody who, like Aditya, is paid to worry. Um, this time it's Sumant Wahi, who focuses on um, technology, a sector uh, that keeps moving closer into all political crosshairs, it seems. But surprisingly, regulation is not something that's keeping Sumant up at night. In fact, he sees some potential opportunities for investors. Biden and Democrats are vocal about breaking up big tech, but I think this will be in the form of antitrust. It's actually quite phenomenal how much sort of big tech stifles innovation and young startups. So if you look at 
India, for example, where TikTok was banned, within 48 hours, some of the sort of local competitive apps saw their usership jump from sort of hundreds of thousands to tens of millions within 48 hours. So it's quite a phenomenal jump up just on a single ban. The antitrust laws could actually have an impact on everybody from Google to Facebook. As active fund managers, this gives us a bit of a rich pool of companies to pick from versus just uh, investing in the FANG names. If you think about the rising corporate tax rates, I don't think the tech companies in general benefited from an EPS increase because of uh, tax reduction, because they have a fairly international revenue base and their IP tends to be in low tax geographies anyways. On the other hand, software and hardware companies may see a little bit of slowdown because corporate America has less dollars to spend. The bigger factor which I am worried about is sort of acceleration of the U.S.-China trade war. But I think under Biden, there may be a slowdown of this and there may be some normalization of relations. Under Trump, I think there may be an acceleration of animosity. Sumat a portfolio manager looking at U.S. technology. Aditya, do you think that U.S.-China relations would improve under a Biden administration? I think improvement is a relative term because I think the direction of travel is being set. And I think there is a broad consensus in U.S. that they need to sort of manage China going forward. So I completely agree with Sumant that the, the, the tech war between U.S. and China is a big seminal event because, in a sense, we are creating two parallel internets where China has its own one and we have its own. And then we are asking, the U.S. is asking everybody to decide either you with them or with us in a very Hollywood style. And that can't be good for anything. I mean, I think one plus one should be greater than two in any sort of open world, and we are not doing that. So I worry about it. But do I think that the Democrats will have a lenient views on China? I think they'll have a more holistic view on China, and I think they will involve more uh, other other countries and geographies sort of come with it as a consensus. Because what we've seen from Trump is he shoots from the hip. And so we don't really know who is supporting him or not. And I think if Biden is going to do that, he will sort of have a better coalition to handle that. But I think the, the broad direction is clear. And what does it, regardless of who wins, what does it mean for US companies, this, um, this tension that will exist in some form or another? Well, it can't be good, right? Because at the end of the day, China is still 1.5 billion people and it's a huge market. So if you are creating a tension with one-fifth of the world population broadly, then you're losing out that market in some form or the other, and vice versa. If the, if the Chinese companies are locked out of the U.S., you're kind of losing a big part of the global GDP. So I think it is a lose-lose situation for the world economy and the global economy, but I think at this stage we are way beyond the economic considerations, my feeling is. And thinking about the other side, the supply into American companies of the labor pool um, that they have been drawing on in, in China. Um, if things get worse, what would happen then? So I think the, the, the direction of travel is that people will move things out of China, either to other countries in, in Asia, either Southeast Asia. India is obviously trying to court them with huge tax breaks. The other alternative is to actually move things back to Mexico and closer to the market. And I think we are seeing that more and more from companies. And I think that plays into big on automation because if you're going to lose that uh, labor pool, then you need to sort of somehow 
deliver the efficiency and productivity through other means. And so the use of robotics, automation, would be the next 10-year theme. Otherwise, we're going to create huge amounts of inflation, and that's not what anybody wants. So I think the byproduct of all of this is a significant investment into improved productivity across the value chain. Now, there is civil unrest in U.S. cities, as we mentioned, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, dismay surrounding the pandemic. What do you think this election will come down to for the average American? Is it going to be money in their pockets or is it something a bit deeper about values? I have got to say, I think we're into the territory of values now. And, and I, I do want to circle back on something Aditya said as it, as it relates to the potential analysis on our, our relationship with China. Uh, just symbolically, I think uh, uh, the world is is obviously focused on ESG. We're focused on resilience. We're focused on the S of ESG. And in voters' minds around the world, I think there is probably no single more important factor, deciding factor, when thinking about what kind of society you want to be a part of. And so I, when we think about uh, the relationship that the United States has with China, uh, I think to automatically assume that a Biden administration, if elected, would have a cozier relationship with China, I'm not necessarily sure that that's the case. I think the a potential Biden White House is going to come down very hard on the side of values. I don't think that applies only to China. I think it applies to governments around the world. But I think a values orientation in the populace is going to be reflected uh, with a values orientation uh, at the highest levels of government. And so I really do believe that this has become more personal and more emotive than ever. Of course, there's always the paycheck, and, and we are going through uh, a pretty severe economic downturn at the moment. Uh, but I do think that the relative importance of values is going to be higher this election season than it has been historically. Briefly, Aditya, do you agree? Values or money? Well, I'm a portfolio investor, so I'll go with money. But, but I do agree with Ned. I think this is not as simple as just about economy. I mean, if this was just about economy, then I would give Trump zero chance at this point of time. I think the inequality is starting to become a massive issue in US and globally, even in UK. So I do think that all the economy is important. I think inequality within the economy has become quite endemic. And I think that's where the Democrats have a very clear advantage over everybody else at this point of time. Okay. Well, on, on the topic, we've got a, a final portfolio manager, Aneta Vinimko. Aneta is an expert in consumption patterns, and she thinks that the rise of the conscious consumer is gearing up to play a big role in the future of, of politics. So, Ned, agreeing um, uh, with your point. Here's Aneta. Conscious consumption is a big trend, and this is what I think consumers are realizing, especially going through the health crisis, uh, that with the money, with the dollars, they can really vote and they can choose and support companies that do the right thing. And it is interesting that the new Green Deal from the Democrats, there is an endorsement coming from the top. This will reinforce this, this, this trend that is already there. If Biden wins, uh, obviously taxes will go up. They will go up for corporates, but they will also go up for the wealthy people. And in normal circumstances, one would think this should be a negative for the consumption. But I think the wealthy people, they have realized that uh, the current situation cannot continue, that the wealth dispersion in the US is, is very unhealthy. It's causing lots of issues 
and it's actually creating lots of uncertainty uh, for them and for their wealth. So I think they might be willing to share more in terms of the wealth they create and feel happier about about the outlook for their country. And again, these people have very high savings rates. They have lots of assets. Uh, so a little higher tax is, is not going to make a big difference to how they spend. Portfolio manager Anita Vinimkova, what she sees as a shift in attitudes amongst the wealthy, one that could bolster support for the Democrats and their taxation policies. Now, Anna, um, Biden's Green New Deal, um, a $2 trillion spending plan, what sort of impact on the economy could that have if it gets enacted? Well, part of that um, uh, plan uh, would be to achieve uh, carbon neutrality uh, within the US power sector by 35 plus uh, a more proactive shift towards electric vehicles, public transportation, the potential for um, returning to the Paris Climate Agreement um, and putting the country uh, on a path to net zero emissions by 2050. Um, So these are all big policy changes, which um, I think uh, are positive uh, uh, for productivity and growth potential in the long term. In the short term, uh, of course, it's about um, investment, uh, which is also um, positive. But at the same time, um, as you move towards um, uh, more sustainable energy sources, uh, you could uh, see quite significant inflation um, in the economy. Uh, Now, this is not my uh, base case scenario necessarily, uh, but I think uh, it's it's possible. And with everything else going on, uh, the big stimulus that we're seeing right now, uh, perhaps the risk for inflation uh, going uh, well above the target uh, could be substantial uh, if this um, uh, Green New Deal goes ahead. Something to worry about. But um, Aditya, um, are you looking for potential winners, um, beneficiaries from the, the Green New Deal? Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what I do, is to sort of look at a particular theme and say, okay, let's not worry about what's the negative aspect of it, but what's the positive aspect of it. So I think, as Anna said, we're going to have a much more millennial-friendly regime going forward if the Green New Deal comes through. And so millennials are in power, and so what do millennials like? And so that would be what I think is going to happen. I think we will not spend as much on roads and things that people think about, but to how to make the infrastructure better and more user-friendly. I think that will help go investments in areas where it traditionally has not gone in terms of electronics, in terms of automation, um, and I think how to do it better. Because I think... If you look at the last 10 years, the productivity improvements in the U.S. economy, at least, has been very poor. And we need more investments to sort of spur that on. And the beneficiaries of this increased investments could be many in terms of either the industrial complex, the materials complex, high-end plastics, anything that sort of reduces the waste. And I'm really focused on that specific area. Okay, we're almost at the end of this podcast and it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Ned? So the things I'm interested in buying right now are going to be in uh, certain securities that would fall into the value space. There's a handful of companies out there that I actually think are no longer fit 
to be traded in publicly listed equity markets. Great companies, significant long-term compounded earnings where valuation multiples are completely disjointed from reality. So that's what I'd be buying today. And what would you be selling? What are your hot potatoes? The risk that I'm most afraid of is that, uh, pending the election result, that Donald doesn't accept the the results of the U.S. presidential election. So I would be selling, uh, I would be short-term selling U.S. futures. Oh dear, a worried um, Ned. And um, uh, Aditya, you've been worried as well throughout this podcast. But um, first of all, brighten my day with your hot cakes, please. So I am actually quite bullish on automation. So I would actually go and invest in robots, machine vision, lasers, all kinds of things that will make our life much easier in terms of how to improve productivity. I think the next 10-year theme could be the, the rise of productivity on how to make this better. Because if you're going to have a Green New Deal, we're not going to pull tar and other things on the road to sort of deliver what we want. We need to sort of do things and do it better. I'll try and apply it to my own uh, life. Uh, what about your hot potatoes? What are you not so optimistic about? Well, I worry about the bond markets in US, especially the treasury market, because the yields are as low as it gets, and a lot of other asset classes are getting priced of that. So if we do see a whiff of inflation or anything that sort of breaks the gravy train, the convexity of the moves on the other side and, and the correlations could be in real pain on a lot of other things which are getting priced of the bond market. Well, Anna, um, that's a segue to you, but um, I'm not going to ask you about inflation um, uh, directly. Uh, but what are your hotcakes? Um, I uh, like uh, China government bonds. Uh, um, they played uh, a very interesting role of uh, safe haven at some point uh, through the crisis over the last few months. Um, and I think the recent sell-off uh, uh, presents a good opportunity for entry. And I do think that there's potential for this asset class um, to, to be a safe haven in the future. Um, in terms of my um, hot potatoes, um, I would be selling the US dollar, but mainly versus the euro. Um, and it's less of a US story for me and more of a European story where I do see the potential for outperformance, particularly given um, the recent uh, deal uh, on the recovery fund. That's becoming an increasing trend, isn't it? Um, we're hearing more about that optimism about um, Europe for uh, the first time in a while. OK, well, thank you all very much indeed, because I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I hope that's given you an insight into what the investment teams are thinking. If you'd like to read more, you can find it on our website, fidelityinternational.com. And there's plenty more to listen to as well on both of our award-winning Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles on your podcast app. Thanks very much to my guests, Anna Stumnitska, Aditya Kawala, Ned Salter, and to our portfolio managers Aneta Vinimko, Sumat Wahi, Charlotte Harrington and Peter Kahn. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with a production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us here, and there were many on that uh, little roll call, from all of us, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.